This is Nick Dodge and Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The trial of Kyle Rittenhouse begins today. Rittenhouse is accused of shooting two people to death and wounding a third in Kenosha last summer during Black Lives Matter protests against police violence. The trial is expected to last for two weeks. Today has been slow going as at least two dozen prospective jurors were dismissed during jury selection, many because they said they had already made up their minds. Rittenhouse faces life in prison if convicted of first-degree homicide, reports the Associated Press. The state's high court heard arguments today over whether GOP state lawmakers can hire private attorneys for redistricting lawsuits, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The lawsuit takes issue with contracts signed by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMahieu to obtain attorneys outside the State Department of Justice in late 2020 and the start of 2021. An attorney for Voss and LeMahieu argued today that the use of outside law firms was allowed under state statute, and the fact that a lower court blocked the contracts this spring caused irreparable harm. Meanwhile, an attorney representing the Democratic plaintiffs argued, arguing to throw out the con- contracts say that a lame duck session from December 2018, held just before Governor Evers took office as governor, prevents the legislature from seeking private attorneys. The conservative-leaning Wisconsin Supreme Court has not yet ruled, but future litigation on redrawing the state's maps is all but certain. Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call has announced a $115 million legislative package to reduce crime, strengthen gun control laws, and expand drug treatment and diversion programs. He's calling it the Safer Wisconsin Package. The package would invest in community policing, violence prevention programs, and victim services. It would expand treatment and diversion programs and provide funding for mental health crisis response teams, similar to the CARES pilot program in Madison. The package would also expand gun background checks and authorize judges to issue extreme risk protection orders when an individual is deemed to be a threat to themselves or others. Also known as a red flag law, the idea has been repeatedly floated by Governor Evers. The package would also ensure timely testing of sexual assault kits, create a hate crime hotline, and bolster police recruitment and retention programs. The package will be funded by part of the state surplus and, if passed, would also bring in more than $91 million extra federal dollars for education. Dane County public health officials have extended the county-wide mask mandate for another four weeks, but this could be the final mandatory mask order for Dane County residents. Public Health Madison and Dane County say they do not, do not plan to renew the mask mandate when it expires on November 27th. Public Health does recommend that schools continue to require masks among students and staff. Dane County continues to have the highest vaccination rate in the state. 85% of eligible residents have gotten at least one shot. It also had the lowest level of disease activity in the state, according to state numbers from last week. The Wisconsin Department of Transportation will be closing portions of the Beltline later this evening. The closure, which will impact the westbound ramp from the southbound lane of I-39, will begin tonight at 2 a.m. and will last through Wednesday at 5 a.m. The DOT is warning folks to expect significant traffic backups and encouraging drivers to seek alternate routes. 
The Madison Public Library will be handing out free lights and reflective armbands to folks who walk or bike to their local library. The program is a collaboration between the library and the city's traffic engineering department designed to encourage safe biking at night. The project begins this Wednesday and runs through the rest of November. According to data from the city, 60% of serious and fatal pedestrian crashes and 15% of serious bike crashes happen after dark. Madison police officers gave out more than 40 citations to Halloween partiers in the State Street area this Saturday, in a relatively calm night compared to years past. Traditionally, the city would host a large downtown celebration called Freakfest, but due to the ongoing pandemic, city officials canceled the event for the second year in a row. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, most of the infractions included underage drinking, disorderly contact, battery, and urinating in public. In relatedly spooky news, are your pumpkins starting to mold? Collapse in on themselves? The Madison Streets Division will collect your pumpkins along with other yard waste this fall. But first, make sure to remove your other non-compostable items. Though that makes your jack-o'-lantern spooky, your wire, your tea candles, etc. For more, head to cityofmadison.com slash yard waste. And now, on to today's top stories. In 2016, lawmakers in the state legislature eliminated the Government Accountability Board, or GAB. The movement to do so, led mostly by conservatives in the state legislature, cited the body's involvement in a secret probe into former Governor Scott Walker. The GAB was replaced by two bodies, one regulating government ethics and the other regulating elections. But now conservative voices are calling for the Wisconsin Elections Commission to be overhauled again. Our producer Jonah Chester takes us from here. The Wisconsin Elections Commission is a six-person bipartisan group that issues election guidance to clerks and interprets the state's election laws. Three of its members are appointed by Democrats and three are appointed by Republicans. It's existed for only five years, the end product of a conservative-led movement to eliminate its predecessor. Now, GOP legislative officials are again dissatisfied with the body that oversees elections in Wisconsin. They're calling for the resignation of Wisconsin's chief election official, Megan Wolf. And some are calling for the commissioners of the Wisconsin Elections Commission to resign, even the ones Republicans themselves appointed. Speaking to reporters today, Wolf, who is not a voting member of the commission, pushed back against calls for her resignation. So I think this is politics, and that's just not something that I'm able to or willing to engage in. The push comes after two separate investigations into the November election, one undertaken by the nonpartisan Legislative Audit Bureau and one by the Racine County Sheriff's Office. Broadly, the Legislative Audit Bureau's report found that last year's election was safe and secure. But it did make 30 recommendations for the Elections Commission going forward, most of which involve streamlining the state's election rules and operations. Wolf says that the commission will be considering those recommendations at a meeting next month. So in anticipation of that December 1st meeting, I've been directed to start preparing three things for the commission. The first is to put together a list of items that we're able to address right away. Secondly, they've asked me to provide a list of corrections that need to be made to the LAB report. And then third, the commission will also be asked to prioritize and provide guidance on the longer term projects like administrative rules. Notably, the Audit Bureau's report found that a decision last year by the Elections Commission to bar voting deputies from nursing homes went against state statute. 
In a normal year, the state would send teams of special voting deputies to nursing homes to help residents cast their ballots. Last spring, amidst the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, the commission voted to bar deputies from entering nursing homes, telling residents to instead mail their ballots in. Which brings us to the second investigation at hand, which was conducted by Racine County Sheriff Christopher Schmaling. Schmaling, a Trump supporter, argues that the commission broke the law last year when it issued the nursing home rule. He outlined his case in a press conference last Thursday. <clears throat> I must tell you, some of my friends here in the media have headlined this event today as some type of political event. Uh, I'm here today to tell you that that is not true. The purpose of this presentation today is not political. It's not about Democrats. It's not about Republicans. It's about integrity. It's about accountability in the election process. In brief, Schmeling's office alleges that seven residents with cognitive disabilities at the Ridgewood Care Facility in Mount Pleasant had their balance filled in and submitted by nursing home employees. Investigators also allege one resident at the facility possibly voted illegally during the November presidential election. Folks with cognitive disabilities can vote unless a court finds them incompetent. Schmeling's office hasn't filed any charges in the case, but they've asked the state's Department of Justice to investigate, which has so far refused, asking for more facts related to the investigation. Wolf was appointed to her role in 2018. When she was reappointed in 2019, she received unanimous approval from Republicans in the legislature. Wolf's current term lasts through 2023. When asked today whether or not she'd seek another term, she said, One day at a time. 2023 is a while from now, so I'm just focused on the work um, immediately ahead of me. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. Wisconsin's clean energy industry says the state has achieved a key milestone. Mike Moen of the Wisconsin News Connection has more. The clean energy industry has welcomed its newest member to the Gigawatt Club. Wisconsin's recognition for advancing such projects comes at a crucial time for the movement. The Badger State recently reached 1,000 megawatts of operational clean energy capacity and now joins several other central U.S. states, part of a regional power grid organization known as MISO, to achieve gigawatt status. Beth Soholt of the group Clean Grid Alliance says Wisconsin has been slower than other states to usher through solar and wind projects, but has come on strong lately. The Wisconsin Public Service Commission has, you know, approved quite a few new projects in the last six months, and there is more in the pipeline. According to the group, Wisconsin has more than 500 megawatts of clean energy capacity under construction. Soholt adds that solar projects have been the biggest driver behind Wisconsin's growth. But she warns there are hurdles, including the need for more grid capacity. The Natural Resources Defense Council has noted that hundreds of MISO region projects had to be withdrawn in recent years because of grid congestion. Soholt says the proposed Cardinal Hickory Creek transmission line project for states such as Wisconsin would certainly help to unlock grid space. We just simply need to be able to deliver the electrons to where the energy is needed. The proposed 102-mile line, which would run along sections of southwestern Wisconsin, has been mired in legal challenges as project officials seek final approval. Opponents include environmental groups who say the overhead lines would harm the landscape. But supporters contend it's a vital link to boosting clean energy while reducing the need for fossil fuels. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org.
It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Earlier today, Wisconsin's Capitol Residence Board approved adding a statue of Vell Phillips to the state capitol grounds. Phillips' achievements are too numerous to list here. She was, among many other things, the first woman and black person elected to statewide office, the first black woman to graduate from the UW-Madison School of Law, and the first black woman to sit on Milwaukee's Common Council. Now her statue will be the first on the Capitol grounds to depict a black woman. Shortly after today's vote, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with some of Phillips' family and the organizer behind the effort to erect her likeness on the Capitol grounds. He takes us from here. Millie, I'm assuming that's not your full no, name. Mind if I get your full name? Mildred Kobe, and everyone calls me Millie. Uh, Millie, tell me about your relationship to Val. Yes, Val was my godmother. And when you saw Val, you saw little Millie with her. So I, I grew up with a wonderful example, and she was just like a mom. I was adopted, and my adopted parents passed away when I was young, and she just been right there as a role model, inspiration, a mom that, that fussed at me when I didn't do what was right and to encourage me to keep doing, you know, what was good and move forward. So she's just been a wonderful, wonderful gift uh, to my life. So what does this mean for you personally, seeing this statue? It, it won't go up for a few months yet, but when it does go up, what will that mean for you personally? This means an open door of opportunity for me to keep dreaming and to know that young people that are coming behind us, that they have a window and a door of, of, of possibilities, no matter what. And that's who she was. She was so gracious. But, you know, we always talk about the first and all the first that she did. But the first that she did, she would tell me all the time when we would leave events and she would get awards. She said, I didn't do this by myself, but I did it for so many young people so they can know nothing would be impossible. So this means that nothing will be impossible for me or for anyone. Tell me more about that. What does this statue mean, not just for you, but for, for the for the black community here in Madison, for the black community here in Wisconsin? It means that hard work and dedication, no matter your gender, no matter your race, if you work hard and believe and trust that you, the sky's the limit. This means that no matter what has never been done before can be done. And, and you can dream and you can obtain and, and see the opportunities come to fruition in your life no matter what. This means equality to a lot of people. People will look at this statue and say that there's equality in, in the nation. There's equality in Wisconsin. There's hope. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Before I let you get back to your business, anything else you want to add to the record you think folks listening should be aware of? Yes, I think they should be aware that it's time for us to come together and work hard and, and, and things that we do like Val, what she did, she said it wasn't just for her. So, you know, don't be afraid to take challenges. Don't be afraid to dream. Don't be afraid to work hard and obtain your goals because not, it's not just for you, but it's for generations to come after you. There are generations that will be able to witness this to, to come. And this is just phenomenal. And this, is, this means strength. It means unity. It means opportunity. It means success. And it means equality for so many people.
Thank you so much for talking thank with me, Millie. I appreciate okay, it. Okay, thank you. Yeah, Michael Johnson, uh, President and CEO, Boys and Girls Clubs of Dane County. You got the ball rolling on this project initially last year. How does it feel now that it's entered the final phase? You know, all the, all the legislative items are taken care of. Now construction and finalizing it is all that remains. How's that feel? Cry like a baby. <laughs> it was. Uh, it feels good, man, to know that, you know, 17 months ago, you know, that young activists were, you know, pushing for something like this to happen. And I wanted to be responsive to them, and I'm thankful that people stepped up to raise money for this uh, statue. I'm thankful that the Republicans and the Democrats saw that this was important enough to get this done. And I'm just I'm thankful um, that we get to honor uh, Vail Phillips and that both black, white, and brown kids will be able to see representation that's reflective of our state. And talk to me about what the community support for this project meant to you. I mean, it means a lot. I mean, that support came from, you know, every corner of Wisconsin, from northern Wisconsin down to southern Wisconsin, from Milwaukee to Madison. I mean, it was amazing just to see, like, the level of people who wanted to support, you know, this project. And it feels good to be able to connect, you know, with Vail's family around, you know, this campaign has just been short of amazing. Uh, and then with all of the civil unrest that's happening, and the fact that you know this country do not have a, a statue of a black woman right now, I'm actually amazed that it hasn't happened yet. So I'm thankful that I was able to play a small part in helping to make that happen. And then tell me more about this new fundraising project you're kick, you're kicking off, inspired by this initiative. Yeah, I mean we want to make sure that you know it's not just a statue, but there's a fund to be able to continue Vail's work to help kids go to law school, to help kids, you know, that may have housing issues, to help kids who may need scholarships for college. So we want to raise a million dollars. We want to put that um, that fund in a foundation um, that will pay it forward for kids throughout Wisconsin, not just Madison, just not just Milwaukee, but kids throughout uh, the state. My name is Michael Damon Phillips. What does this mean to you personally, seeing the statue of your mother going up on the state capitol grounds? It means, uh, boy, it means that all of the things that um, my mother raised me to think about, mostly others, and um, the thing about those who are less privileged than you, have come to fruition. My mom really, uh, she worked for everyone, not just African-American people, but she worked for the freedoms and um, the opportunities of every citizen in this country. And it says to me that that work is recognized and um, is maybe even cast forward, that we can make a new start toward um, thinking not only of ourselves, but of others. Talk to me about the role you've had in this process over the past year plus. Right. Uh, I guess my only role, I mean, I'm an attorney. I, I worked here in Madison for years and years, and I ended my career as um, assistant district attorney in Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office. But what I have been in this process is the face of uh, the family, um, the face of my mom, and I've been the, the uh, I guess you just have to say I've been... Um, the heart of it, really. Yeah, no one knew my mom better than me. And both my father's passed on, my brother's passed on, and most of my relatives um, have passed on. And so when it came time to answer questions or to 
speak about um, my mom as uh, a woman outside of her public domain. It came to me to do that. And just before I let you get back to your day, final parting thoughts here. What message do you want this statue to send to the greater Madison community and folks just, you know, across Wisconsin? What's, what message do you hope this, this statue conveys? I want, it, um, I want everyone to know that um, working together, uh, seeing ourselves in each other is something that we can continue to do. It's something that we can um, reestablish in ourselves. And um, it is the, the better angels of our lives. Those are the things that um, we should take a look at again. Mr. Phillips, thank you so much for talking with me. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. We get the week ahead in local government on Forward Lookout. Learn about long-term efforts to regulate PFAS contamination. And we review two new movies. But now we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. Every Monday, we check in with Brenda Conkle of ForwardLookout.com to scan city and county agendas for what's up next in local government news. This week, the Homeless Issues Committee tackles future projects, local leaders weigh a zoo report, and the city and county continue to hash out budgets for 2022. It's Monday, that means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from forwardlookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. We'll start with Dane County, and Dane County's been very efficient as they work towards finalizing a, a 2022 budget. Uh, we have a personnel and finance committee meeting canceled today, but the, before we get to the budget, there was uh, a meeting happening right now, the City County Homeless Issues Committee, and all these meetings are virtual unless we say otherwise. So anything big on their agenda? They'll be getting presentations from both the city and the county affordable housing funds, uh, find out how that money is being spent, um, you know, do they need more, do they need less, how's that going, and then they'll be getting a bunch of updates about the city and county budget processes, the men's shelter, Rindall Park, and uh, COVID-19 updates. Tuesday, 7.30, the mysterious Henry Vilas Zoo Commission meets bright and early to discuss the zoo report. We don't know what's in the zoo report, 
But nope. it's out there. One of these days, somebody's going to wake up and watch one of these meetings. It's the same agenda every single yes. time. <laughs> zoo report. The zoo report. So 7.30, and that's on Tuesday. 5 o'clock, also Tuesday, the Community Development Block Grant Commission will be having a virtual meeting. And this one might be important for funding sources for a variety of uh, organizations, right? Yep. Uh, they'll be hearing presentations um, and uh input on their initial set of recommendations for where the CDBG and home funding is going to be going this year. All right. The county will start getting real serious about passing a budget starting on Wednesday uh, with the Personnel and Finance Committee. That starts at 530. But why don't you just walk us through kind of what the next meetings are in terms of passing the budget and where people could give public input? Sure. Um, This is the last Personnel and Finance Committee they should come out with what is usually we call their Uber amendment, which is one big amendment that balances the budget, um, spends all the money up to the to the limits that they can spend. Um, and then that is what usually gets forwarded on to the county board. Um, right now, if you click on the links, you won't see anything there. I'm guessing it'll be out on Tuesday. They usually get it out a little bit at the last minute. They did cancel meetings on Monday and Tuesday this week, though, so maybe they're a little bit farther ahead than what they usually are. Um, Once they pass that, they will set the 2021 tax levy and then change a bunch of amendments um, that go along with the budget uh, changes that they made. Moving on to the City of Madison, uh, the Common Council Executive Committee will be meeting on Tuesday, 430, virtually. They'll get an an update on what's happening uh, at Rindell Park, where... There are many individuals living in tents out there, right? They are getting an update on the safety plan that they have, that the city had put together. They'll also be getting a presentation on Destination Madison. The full Common Council will then meet at 6.30. All 20 alders and the mayor and staff, just the, everybody will be there. Uh, and they'll talk about the future Common uh, Council meeting format. Actually, I was really curious about what they were going to be changing about their format. And this is actually about if it's going to be virtual or not virtual. So it is all virtual through the end of the year, yes. they have decided. Oh, that's so just no it. meetings okay. are going to be in person. That's, that's um, what their determination is. Um, and then there are, again, a whole bunch of, you know, liquor license, pretty routine. They will be... Um, authorizing the uh, or accepting ownership of the art sculptures from the friends of Sid Boyum. Um, and some, those are some of the sculptures that have been around the near east side of Madison for quite some time. And those will become city property. Um, they are also going to accepting the special charges for State Street Mall and um, amending the central bid district ordinance. And then they will be purchasing 22, prop- 22 acres of land out on the north side. Hmm. Um, finally, at 1810 South Park Street, they are going to be uh, getting a lease agreement. Um, I believe that is for a portion where the um, grocery store is going to be out there. And then they are accepting some violence prevention and emerging needs money from the American Rescue Plan. And then they're going to look at uh, reconsideration of changing how the Common Council Executive Committee is organized. Exciting stuff. And that's just the beginning of the week. At 5.30, the Man- Madison Arts Commission will meet on Wednesday. And uh, this looks like uh, they're going through a lot, too, including uh, Blink Proposal Review. So that's some funding for, for public art, right? Yep. And then also um, Metro Transit Percent for Art. They have a um, projects they're supposed to sp- send a spend a certain percentage of money on art and so they'll be looking at metro transit's proposal for that Um, and then they have several other um, activities that are going on in reports 
And the Education Committee will convene at 5.30 Wednesday. Um, they're going to be looking at next steps for the Digital Inclusion Task Force recommendations, which is big for the schools uh, with COVID. And then they are also going to be looking at um, funding and where there are gaps in the city, county, and school board uh, budgets and thinking about what they should be doing to try to address those gaps in 2023. And uh, all right, Brenda, well, maybe uh, there's a couple more meetings that everyone can check out at uh, forwardlookout.com, particularly with some of the county budget stuff. You may want to check in tomorrow, but uh, we'll just end tonight with uh, the Board of Park Commissioners who have a ton on their uh, agenda, including approving all these fees and, and dog parks and what else? Yeah, you, you named most of it. It's a lot of fees are going up. They'll be looking at the operating and capital budget updates and then they are also going to be looking at um, the Yahari Hills, Yahari Hills Golf Course is being proposed to be a sustainability campus, <laughs> which I think means landfill, um, but really slightly coded words. Yes. That's a, the innovation, a sustainability campus. What the heck does that mean? Hold on here. Let me read this. One. Isn't it a landfill? It's going to be a landfill. Tell me what it is working with. A sustainability campus, uh, i.e., uh, a landfill. So it's quite a little wordsmithing going on, but hopefully uh, we'll learn more about that later. Brenda, thank you so much. <laughs> Maybe for... it'll be a better landfill. I, let's hope so. I mean, like they're setting, they're setting up for a very Orwellian thing, if this is what I'm thinking of in terms of becoming a landfill. But, uh, you know, they um, there's different ways to do things, you know. A Demetrol, you know, all these things used to be, there's nice areas right now that used to be landfills, right? Yep, yep. Yep. I'm sure they can can make it uh, sustainable. Yes, they can. They just might have to have a pipe that will shoot up methane gas every once in a while just to make sure the whole place doesn't blow up underneath. So, All right. Well, before we uh, get kicked off for some libelous reason, let's we better get the heck out of here, Brenda. All right? We'll see you next week. Right. Brenda Congo from FordLookout.com. Thanks for uh, walking us through this week in, in city and county government. Thanks. This week on The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson tells us the story of a dramatic and victorious struggle by miners in Tennessee against the use of convict labor. Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time for our brothers and our sisters up and down that picket line, for the unnamed and unnumbered who struggle brave and long. Yesterday, October 31st, marks the day in 1891 when armed miners in Coal Creek, Anderson County, Tennessee, descended on a mine owned by Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad Company, TCI. The miners marched to a stockade that housed convict laborers, freed them, burned the prison stockades to the ground, then repeated it twice more over the next two days. This was part of the Coal Creek War of April 1891 to August 1892. After repeated actions, the miners won abolition of the entire convict lease system in Tennessee. The convict lease system re-enslaved between 100,000 and 200,000 African-American men and a few women from 1877 into the 1920s across the South. Officials wanted cheap labor and social control of black people, so they arrested blacks on the pretext of violating vague laws such as vagrancy. They leased out convicts for token payments, dropping the floor out of local wages. A conservative newspaper said it was next to impossible 
for private businesses without convict labor to compete with companies who used it. Colonel Arthur Collier, the Tennessee Democratic leader and general counsel for the TCI, noted that the company appreciated how using convicts discouraged strikes by their regular employees. The Coal Creek War began in the spring of 1891 when TCI offered a contract to its coal miners with two provisions illegal under state law, disallowing Chuck Waitman, who made sure miners got paid for their full weight of ore, and providing pay and scrip redeemable only at the company store. The contract also forbade strikes for grievances. Briceville Miners, part of the Knights of Labor, turned down the contract. When mine operators brought in 40 convicts to tear down the miners' houses and erect their own prison stockade, miners responded by organizing an action ahead of the arrival of the next large influx of convicts. Just after midnight, 300 armed miners advanced on the stockade, demanding the release of the prisoners forced the officers, guards, and convicts to march to the train depot at Coal Creek, pack them in, and sent the train to Knoxville. The next day, the governor came to the area, leading three companies of militia, and reinstalled the convicts. But after the governor left, the miners entertained the soldiers and shipped food to the barracks. The militia requested leaves of absence, and one detachment nearly deserted. Nearly everyone in the county supported the miners. A few weeks later, outside the offending mine, a miners' committee demanded the convicts' release, but a militia colonel moved to capture the miners. One miner waved a handkerchief to signal, and 2,000 miners emerged from undercover. Together, they convinced militia, guards, and convicts to depart for Knoxville, then repeated the process on another mine. Then the governor ordered 14 companies of militia, including 600 armed guards, to the area. After getting the governor to commit to calling a special legislative session to repeal the convict lease law, the miners accepted a truce, but the leasing companies blocked the proposed chain. The miners appealed to the courts, but were refused and returned to direct action. In October, at a mass meeting, miners elected a more radical leadership. After secret meetings to prepare, they began actions Halloween night. They freed over 300 convict laborers and burned three stockades. Initially, miners were recalled to their jobs, and the workplace demands were met. But it took most of another year to solidify these gains. In mid-December 1891, the governor pledged to bring convicts back yet again and established a permanent military camp with 175 soldiers and a Gatling gun overlooking the valley. Six months later, in both Anderson and Grundy counties, miners overpowered stockade guards, freed convicts, and shipped them on the train to the cities. In Anderson County, protesting miners were fired upon by the guards. They responded by disarming the guards, burning the blockhouse, and returning guards and convicts to Knoxville on two commandeered freight trains. Then they laid siege to the fort, which ended only when 500 soldiers arrived. Many miners were arrested and locked up, but nearly all were released by local juries. Eventually, even the Tennessee legislature admitted the convict stockades were, quote, hellholes of rage, cruelty, despair, and vice, unquote. The militia had crushed the revolt, but the miners' action discredited the convict lease system, and the state legislature abolished it. The miners returned to work victorious, and that is our story for today. For the past is and past, I'm Harry Richardson. <laughs>
It's now 6.46 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. PFAS are a family of man-made forever chemicals. They're a widespread issue in Madison's waterways and have been linked to a number of adverse health effects. So if PFAS are such a widespread and well-known issue, why are there no significant efforts to address the chemicals? To answer that question, Monday 8 o'clock Buzz host Brianne Standing spoke with Scott Laser, the Water Program Director at Clean Wisconsin. All right, we're back. We've got Scott Lazar from uh, Clean Wisconsin on the line. We're talking about PFAS chemicals. And, uh, Scott, we've known PFAS chemicals are bad for human health for many years now. Why is it taking so long for any regulating agencies to take action? You know, that that is a good question and an unfortunate one that we are sort of asking ourselves today. Um, I think you have to start with the fact that while we've known and or should have known for a long time that these chemicals were dangerous, there were some pretty um, aggressive efforts by folks in the industry that manufactures and uses these chemicals to hide those health impacts. And that goes back uh, decades. And so those efforts to, to sort of sweep under the rug some of the health risks associated with PFAS exposure absolutely delayed um, a reckoning over the risks that families have faced as a consequence of these. And there have been um, extensive reporting over the last several years on some of the um, additional health impacts around things like cancers that have happened in areas where PFAS have been heavily manufactured. And so that was a big, big part of the issue. Federal and state bureaucracy can move slowly sometimes. And so there's often a lag in recognizing a new risk and in taking the requisite actions to address it. The last thing I'll say is that these things are tasteless and odorless and undetectable without proper testing. And that has certainly um, contributed as well. So now that we know that these chemicals uh, are dangerous, who's benefiting from their continued use? I mean, to be blunt, we all are. Um, These chemicals are everywhere. They're in food packaging. They're on waterproof clothing. They're in our cookware. uh, They're in firefighting foam, which is what has led to some of the contamination at Starkweather Creek. So in some respects, we're all benefiting from uh, some of the properties that these chemicals demonstrate when they're used. Of course, we are all also suffering from the health impacts. And the reality is that we all have PFAS in our bodies already. Um, It is ubiquitous. It is all over the world. Efforts efforts to find a quote-unquote reference population of people who didn't have PFAS in their blood uh, came up short because it's everywhere, and we've got it in our systems already. Now, that doesn't mean it's in high enough concentrations to be causing health impacts in everyone, but we absolutely see in certain circumstances um, that it's in water in extremely high concentrations. Uh, It's in soil. It's in biosolids. It's showing up in things like fish. And so as it gets concentrated and gets into our bodies uh, in higher amounts, then then the, the risks are a lot more significant. Now, what, what are the, some of the properties that make PFAS uh, an attractive industrial product? What are the things that it does that um, 
uh, people find useful, and are there alternatives that are not as toxic? So the first part of your question, I think we can take three uh, example products. Uh, Teflon cookware, uh, waterproof jackets, and food packaging. What PFAS does is it does really good at not binding to stuff that touches it, right? So it makes food less sticky on packaging. It makes food less sticky on cookware. And it repels water from things like waterproof clothing or stain-resistant clothing. And so um, that is one of the, the main properties associated with it. The question of are there less dangerous um, alternatives is, you know, it depends on the performance that you're looking for. And one of the real challenges here is that we have good data on some of the older PFAS chemicals, PFOA and PFOS, about the health risks associated with them. But there are thousands of PFAS chemicals that are in use. And so it's really hard to keep up with the new chemicals and the health risks they present. And so it's tempting for, you know, folks in the industry to say, well, we're going to stop using that one, but we're just going to use this different one with a slightly different chemical makeup. And it's really too early to say that some of those newer PFAS chemicals don't pose any risk or don't pose the same risk that some of the older ones do. All right. We've been speaking with Scott Lazar from Clean Wisconsin. Thank you so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz. Thanks so much, Brian. And thanks for giving some attention to a really important topic for Madison and Wisconsin. On this week's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson checks out two new films, Dune Part 1, a great new science fiction film that will hopefully launch some substantial sequels, and Army of Thieves, a fun heist movie. I've been having dreams about a girl falling in battle. Felt like a vision. Dreams make good stories. But everything important happens when we're awake. That was a clip from the trailer for Dune, Part 1, co-written and directed by Denis Villeneuve. That last part of the title, Part 1, comes in the opening credits and may be aspirational, or a clue for true blue Dune fans, or both. This is an exceptional film, with a fine cast, great special effects, cinematography, and best of all, the world-building story. The movie's based on a classic science fiction series by Frank Herbert, started in 1965. Script writing is shared with John Sprays and Eric Roth. The movie, at 2 hours and 35 minutes, wisely only covers part 1, some 325 pages. The whole book, with parts 2 and 3, is around 800 pages. They hew pretty close to the original story, set far in the future. There is faster than light travel, and mankind has settled on many worlds. As our story opens, the Imperium runs all, and is served by planet-bound dukes. Space travel is run by the Space Guild, and there's a mystical women's cult, B'nai Gesserit, playing the long game. Spice, the most valuable material in the universe, is only found on the desert world of Arrakis, Dune. It makes space travel and thus the Empire possible. The movie has a large, able cast. Duke Leto Atreides, played by Oscar Isaac, runs a rich, Earth-like planet. Our story begins just before his household is to take over Arrakis on the Emperor's orders from a rival family run by Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, still in Starsgard. The Harkonnens have grown rich controlling Arrakis with an iron fist over its indigenous people, the Fremen, and maintaining a monopoly on spice. Leto has been warned against taking the assignment but has little choice. Joining him on the journey is his consort, Lady Jessica, 
Rebecca Ferguson, a member of the B'nai Gesserit. They have a son, Paul Atreides, Timothy Chalamet, who is 15. Jessica has displeased the order by having a son. She was supposed to have a girl who would be a B'nai Gesserit. Jessica has further upset the order by training Paul in their ways, so Paul must be tested. Enter Gaius Helen Monium, Charlotte Ramping, as a wizened elder to test Paul. It's an unpleasant test, but he survives. Then Paul has to bid farewell to his trainer and friend, Duncan Idaho, Jason Momoa, who is off on a secret mission to contact the Fremen. Finally, the family and their entourage leave a treatise and land on the desert world, where the real story begins, and we see Paul set off on his true destiny. I saw it on HBO with several big sci-fi fans. They all loved it. I highly recommend this film. I have two concerns, one minor, one not. Lady Jessica is portrayed as too weepy. The Benet Jesuit are made of sterner stuff. Also, the treaties are all white, which sets up a white savior scenario for Paul vis-a-vis the Fremen in the follow-up films. Saying that, I hope they make enough money on Dune 1 and between HBO and movie theaters to make at least two more to finish up the first Dune book. There is certainly plenty of material available. Six books by Frank Herbert and 20 by his son Brian and Kevin J. Anderson. See it on the biggest screen available if you can do so safely. Next up, a heist film on the small screen. This window of opportunity isn't just our only chance, it's yours. A life less ordinary. That was a clip from the trailer for the new film Army of Thieves, directed by Matthias Schweighofer, who plays the story's naive safecracker. It's a prequel for the entertaining Army of the Dead. That Netflix feature is about a gang who breaks into a Las Vegas filled with zombies to get money from a casino super-secret secure safe for the casino's owner. As the story opens, Sebastian is a bored bank teller in Germany. He's a big fan of a master craftsman who creates four uncrackable safes. Sebastian even makes a YouTube video. It has only one viewer, but she leaves a tantalizing message. Do you want to test your talents? Sebastian wins a safe-cracking contest and is recruited by the mysterious Gwendolyn, Natalie Emanuel, a master thief. The rest of her team are Macho Man, Gunman Brad Cage, Stuart Martin, a quirky hacker, Karina Rubio Fee, and quippy getaway driver, Rolf Guz Khan. No real surprises, but a lot of fun. If you enjoy heist films, you'll enjoy this one, especially its outstanding performances by Emanuel and Schwinghofer. It just started playing on Netflix. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, Dylan Brogan, and the 8 o'clock buzz's Brian Standing. Jonah Chester produced this newscast, Victor Calzoni engineered the show, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Nick Dodge. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.